Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, YouTube, SoundCloud, Audioboom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science 360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Space Time, a new cosmic map solves one mystery but deepens another. A new world discovered in the outer reaches of the solar system. And the European Space Agency's Schiaparelli prepares to land on Mars. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. The most precise map ever of the large-scale structure of the universe has confirmed predictions of Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity. The map provides positions of cosmic voids, huge empty spaces of the cosmos containing relatively few galaxies. It also has the locations of the connecting filaments and nodes, which contain the universe's large galaxy clusters and superclusters, huge regions with more galaxies than normal. And combined, the voids and superclusters can be used to measure the effect of dark energy, which is causing the accelerated expansion of the universe. However, the findings reported in the Astrophysical Journal Letters have also deepened a long-standing cosmological mystery about the unexplained so-called cold spot covering a vast sector of the universe. The study's lead author, Dr. Sasadri Nadatha from the University of Portsmouth, says his team used new techniques to make some very precise measurements of the effects that the voids and superclusters have on photons passing through them from the cosmic microwave background radiation, the leftover light from the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. According to Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity, which describes gravity, light from the cosmic microwave background is stretched and bent as it travels through these voids and superclusters. And the stretching effect of dark energy causes tiny changes in the temperature of the cosmic microwave background radiation, depending on where it came from. As a result, photons travelling through voids should appear slightly cooler than normal, while those arriving from superclusters should appear slightly hotter. This phenomenon is known as the integrated Satch-Wolf effect. When this effect was studied by astronomers at the University of Hawaii in 2008 using an older catalogue of voids and superclusters, they were shocked to find that the effect seemed to be at least five times bigger than expected, and these results have puzzled scientists ever since. So Nadatha and colleagues have repeated the experiment using new data. To create their new map of voids and superclusters, the Portsmouth team used more than three quarters of a million galaxies identified through the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. This gave the authors a catalogue of structures more than 300 times bigger than the one previously used. The authors then used large computer simulations of the universe to try and predict the size of the integrated Satch-Wolf effect. However, because the effect is so small, the team had to develop a powerful new statistical technique in order to be able to measure the cosmic microwave background radiation data. They applied this technique to the cosmic microwave background radiation data from the Planck satellite, and they're able to make very precise measurements of the integrated Satch-Wolf effect of the voids and superclusters. Unlike the previous 2008 University of Hawaii results, the new findings agreed extremely well with predictions using Albert Einstein's general relativity theory. 
However, while these findings have now resolved one cosmological puzzle, they've deepened a long-standing mystery of a very unusual so-called cold spot in the cosmic microwave background radiation. Now, it's been suggested that this cold spot could be caused by the integrated Satch-Wolf's effect on the gigantic supervoid which had been seen in that part of the sky. The problem is, if Einstein's general theory of relativity is correct, and everything we know about the universe tells us it is, then this supervoid simply isn't big enough to explain the cold spot. Now, it was thought there may have been some sort of exotic gravitational effect which contradicts Einstein, which would simultaneously explain both the cold spot and the unusual integrated Satch-Wolf results from Hawaii. But these new measurements have now negated that idea completely. And so, as a result, the cold spot mystery remains unexplained. Astronomers have discovered weird structures shaped like double peanuts in two nearby galaxies. The discovery, reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, are thought to provide new clues about the history of these galaxies. The pair, NGC 128 and NGC 2549, are both disc-shaped galaxies, sort of similar to the Milky Way in appearance. They're located roughly 200 million light-years and 60 million light-years away, respectively, in the constellations Pisces and Lynx. Using data from the Hubble Space Telescope and the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, the researchers realised that the two galaxies they were studying were quite exceptional. The astronomy team, including the study's lead author Bogdan Camber from Swinburne University, detected the unusual structures using newly developed imaging software. The authors detected this unusual double peanut shell shape, which they believe was formed by the distribution of stars bulging from the centres of these galaxies. The shape sort of resembles two peanut shells, with one neatly nesting inside the other. The peanut shell configuration was visible in two separate layers within the galaxy's three-dimensional distribution of stars. It's the first time such a phenomenon has been observed. Although the bulges of both galaxies were already known to display a single peanut shell pattern, astronomers had never before observed the faintest second structure in any galaxy. These structures each consist of billions of stars, typically spanning up to a quarter of the length of the galaxies. Astronomers believe the peanut-shaped bulges are somehow linked to the bar-shaped distribution of stars that's observed across the centres of many rotating galaxy disks. Both these galaxies contain two such bars, and it's thought one way these peanut-shaped structures could be forming is when these bars of stars bend above and below the galaxy's central disk. Because of that, this study may shed new light on the peanut-shaped bulge of our own Milky Way galaxy, which some astronomers suspect also contains two stellar bars. This instability mechanism could be similar to water running through a garden hose. You know, when the water pressure is low, the hose remains fairly still. In the case of these galaxies, the stars remain in their usual orbits. But once you turn the water pressure up high, the garden hose starts to bend, usually spraying water in your face. Funny how they do that, isn't it? and the stellar orbits may be bending the outside of the galaxy's disk plane in the same way. The discovery is exciting, because it will enable scientists to more fully test the growth of bars in galaxies over time, including their lengths, their rotational speeds, and also periods of instability. 
The team will now run computer simulations to try and emulate what they're seeing in both NGC 128 and NGC 2549. Cambus says if they can repeat their observations through these computer simulations, it'll provide new clues about galaxy evolution, including our own Milky Way. Basically, uh, the whole discovery has to do with the general class of galaxies. There are special galaxies, and they're not so well known. So essentially what happens in, inside these, in the central stellar distributions, is that they're actually shaped like two-lobed sorts of peanut. Their bulges, which is what their central stellar distributions are called, are shaped like this. And, you know, people have, have known about these, uh, these objects objects you know ever since the 50s but what we found recently is essentially two such peanut bulges in a single galaxy so essentially there's a small peanut bulge nestled comfortably inside a bigger one that's of three to five times bigger than the smaller one so we're looking at these barred spiral galaxies and as you looked at them you noticed in the central hub in the bar region of these galaxies the bar was shaped sort of like a peanut yeah that's exactly right so it's the central part of the bar that uh, people believe what happens is that it starts to bend and it gives this sort of bow tie or X or peanut shape, as is usually called in, in the field. And I guess our own Milky Way galaxy being a barred spiral may well have a similar sort of shape. It does, actually. Our, our Milky Way has a peanut bulge, and this has been known. People have been uh, studying uh, since about 2013 uh, the, the bulge of the Milky Way, and it does indeed seem to have a bulge, and a peanut bulge. And we're lucky enough to see it because we're outside of it in, in the disk. So we have a good vantage point. As we looked at these two galaxies that you guys have been studying, it wasn't just a single peanut bulge you saw, but there were two bulges there. That's right. There was a small one nested inside a bigger one. What do you think is causing that? Well, uh, the formation mechanism is actually a little bit complicated. So essentially, you have to imagine a bar and you have to, you know, vision, visualize it uh, looking uh, side on. So if it, the two ends starts to wobble up and down then this is going to give rise to such a peanut distribution. And this wobbling is called in the field of fire hose instability because the bending mechanism is similar to uh, water running through a hose at high pressure and causing it to bend. So what we think may be going on is that these galaxies have two bars and each of these bars has its own peanut. So essentially the mechanism is, well, it's a little bit complicated, but it's a bar bending. So the, the orbits of the stars are bending because of an instability. And the instability, in principle, is similar to, to what happens inside a garden hose when you turn the water on high. It starts to bend and twist. And if it wobbles a few times, then it gives rise to this peanut. And has this double peanut been seen before? Is this the first time it's been noticed? This is the first time, actually. People have known about single peanuts, but really, this is the first time that we see a twin or a double structure like this. Now, there are other sorts of theories out there, but the, these galaxies do show the signatures of uh, two bars at different, at different radii. What do we know about these two galaxies? Uh, how well studied have they been? Well, there haven't been many studies. Basically, people have known that each of these galaxies contain a single peanut, but the other one was pretty faint. It was really when uh, we started analyzing it with our new software here that we were actually able to detect the second one. Earlier in my PhD, I sort of developed a software that was meant to analyze the way the galaxy's light is distributed with very high precision. Compared to what we had before in terms of studying galaxies, this was kind of like switching from a magnifying glass to a microscope. So Alistair and I started studying uh, peanut galaxies uh, with this, and lo and behold, we found really delicate faint structures in a lot of them, and in particular these, uh, these, um, these double peanuts. What makes a spiral galaxy become a uh, bad spiral? The whole thing is an 
an instability. So you have to imagine a flat disk of rotating stars, and that disk at some point in its lifetime becomes unstable and forms an elongated distribution called a bar, because it's actually bar-like. And then it's this bar that becomes unstable and starts to wobble and bend, and that gives rise to the peanut structure. And where to next? We're going to look for more peanut galaxies? I guess that's got to be the next thing to see if we can find any more. You've got two examples at the moment. That's right. We have two examples. We're hoping to find a lot more. And also the next step is to look at pretty much the closest peanut balls out there, which is that of the Milky Way. So we'd really like to see how our own galaxy fits into, into the picture. And something else that we're also very keen to look into is the formation mechanism of these uh, double peanut structures. And we're kind of hoping to attack this through simulations. But that's a little bit more long term. That's Bogdan Camber from the Swinburne University of Technology. A new world's been discovered in the outer reaches of the solar system, some 13.6 billion kilometres from the Sun. The distant frozen world was originally detected in 2014 by astronomers conducting the Dark Energy Survey, a massive map of distant galaxies, and it's now been confirmed by the International Astronomical Union. The new object, which has been designated 2014 UZ224, is about 530 kilometres wide and takes an estimated 1,100 Earth years to complete one orbit of the Sun. Astronomers estimate that UZ224 is on a highly elliptical orbit, ranging from a perigee, or nearest orbital position to the Sun, of 37.97 astronomical units, out to an apogee, that is its most distant orbital position from the Sun, of 180 astronomical units. An astronomical unit is about 150 million kilometres. It's the average distance between the Earth and the Sun. Now, all that makes UZ224 the third most distant observable object in the solar system, after Aries at 96.2 astronomical units and V774104 at somewhere around 103 astronomical units. By the way, for the record, the Voyager 1 spacecraft officially left our solar system and entered interstellar space when it reached 123 astronomical units. Astronomers believe UZ224 could belong to a subclass of trans-Neptunian worlds known as scattered disk objects. Both 2014 UZ224 and another distant world called 2015 RR245, which was discovered in July, may become the latest members of a class of celestial bodies known as dwarf planets. Basically, to be a dwarf planet, you need to be self-gravitating, and as far as we know, any object over 400 kilometres in diameter is thought to be large enough to become spherical in shape due to its own gravitational attraction and can therefore be classified as a dwarf planet. The thing is, there are currently only five confirmed dwarf planet members in our solar system. They include the main belt asteroid Ceres and four existing trans-Neptunian objects, Pluto, Aries, Humea and Makemake. The other potential dwarf planet, designated 2015 RR245, is a 700 kilometre wide body in a highly elliptical orbit, which takes it from a perigee of 34 astronomical units, similar to that of Pluto, out to an apogee of over 80 astronomical units. It was first identified back in February this year by astronomers examining observations taken in September last year using the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope on Mauna Kea in Hawaii, as part of the ongoing Outer Solar System Origin Survey. As RR245 has only been observed for one of the 700 Earth years it takes to orbit the Sun, where it came from and how its orbit will slowly evolve in the near future is still unknown. Astronomers believe it's been in its current orbit for at least 100 million Earth years. 
However, its precise orbit will be refined over the coming years, after which RR245 will be given a name by the International Astronomical Union. The Outer Solar System Origin Survey was designed to map the orbital structure of the Outer Solar System in order to decipher the system's history. RR245 is the largest discovery and so far the only potential dwarf planet found by the survey, which has already discovered more than 500 other trans-Neptunian objects. Previous surveys have mapped almost all the brighter dwarf planets, so 2015 RR245 may be one of the last large worlds beyond Neptune to be found, at least until larger telescopes come online sometime in the mid-2020s. In less than a week from now, the European Space Agency's ExoMars Entry, Descent and Landing Module Schiaparelli will touch down on the frozen, arid surface of the Red Planet. The cone-shaped Schiaparelli lander was launched on March the 14th, attached to ESA's ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter or TGO spacecraft for the seven-month journey to Mars. On October the 16th, just three days before reaching Mars, Schiaparelli will undock from the mothership and make its own way to the planet's surface with the TGO then changing its trajectory and undertaking a critical Mars orbit insertion manoeuvre on October the 19th in order to enter orbit around the Red Planet. During its three-day coasting to Mars, the Schiaparelli module will remain in hibernation mode, pretty well where it's been for most of its seven-month journey so far. Hibernation mode is designed to save the energy of its batteries. About an hour before reaching Mars, Schiaparelli will wake up and its onboard computers will be switched on to prepare the spacecraft for EDL, that is atmospheric entry, descent and landing. This will include the startup of the telecommunication system, the inertial measurement unit including its accelerometers, gyroscopes and radar Doppler altimeter. In addition, the propulsion system designed to slow down the spacecraft before landing will be prepared by ensuring the correct operating temperature of the equipment and by opening valves to allow propellant to flow from the tanks to the thrusters. A dedicated sun sensor on the back shell will then be used to recalculate the 777kg lander's orientation before it starts the entry and descent phase. The information gathered during the six-minute journey to the Red Planet surface will test a whole range of new technologies designed to deliver a lander or rover safely to the Martian surface. These include a new heat shield, a new parachute system, a Doppler radar for altitude and relative velocity measurements, a telemetry tracking and command system, a liquid propulsion system for attitude control and final braking, and finally a crushable attenuation system to physically cushion the landing. The blunt-nosed module includes a 47-degree conical back shell and a 70-degree cone-shaped front heat shield designed to handle temperatures of up to 1,750 degrees Celsius during atmospheric entry. The aeroshell comprises a sandwich structure of carbon fiber reinforced polymer skins and aluminium honeycomb. Schiaparelli will enter the atmosphere at an altitude of about 120 kilometres above the Martian surface, travelling at a speed of 5.83 kilometres per second or 21,000 kilometres an hour. Protected inside the aeroshell is the surface platform, which carries the main spacecraft systems and electronics, as well as a small scientific payload conducting environmental studies during its short mission life of just a few days on the Martian surface. Atmospheric drag will slow down the speed of descent drastically, and when it's travelling at about twice the speed of sound, the craft will deploy its 12-metre diameter parachute. 
As soon as the module stabilised beneath the parachute, it'll jettison its front shield by means of pyrotechnic electro-explosive bolts, allowing its Doppler radar to begin sending back data on the spacecraft's altitude, vertical and horizontal velocity. Then, at an altitude of about 1,000 metres and at a speed of about 70 metres per second, or 252 kilometres an hour, the surface platform will separate from the back shell and parachute and the nine CHT-400 hydrazine thrusters will begin firing to further slow down the spacecraft and dampen its horizontal and vertical motion. The thrusters will shut down just 1.5 metres above the surface, allowing Chaparelli to simply drop to the ground at an impact speed of about 4 metres per second, or 14 kilometres per hour. This approach ensures that the plumes from the thrusters don't disturb the ground and also avoids the possibility of an unstable landing on a rocky surface with the thrusters still functioning. The cocoon holding the Chaparelli surface platform is some 2.4 metres in diameter and 1.8 metres high. Once on the ground, the landing platform will be just 1.7 metres wide. Chaparelli carries numerous engineering sensors designed to monitor the performance of the spacecraft during its entire entry, descent and landing sequence. Other sensors will measure temperatures, heat flows and pressures on both the front and back shields, orientation and deceleration during flight and finally the deceleration of touchdown. All these data will be relayed back to Earth either through the TGO orbiter or the Mars Express orbiter as well as through the various NASA spacecraft now in orbit around Mars. This will allow engineers to reconstruct the flight in a simulator so as to optimise the technology and flight processes needed for future missions to the Red Planet. Schiaparelli is the European Space Agency's second attempt to land on Mars. The first was the Beagle 2 lander, which travelled on the Mars Express orbiter which launched in June 2003. After being deployed from Mars Express in December 2003, Beagle 2 began to descend towards the surface. However, all contact was suddenly lost prior to landing. In late 2005, Beagle 2's inventor, Professor Colin Pillinger, released specially processed images from NASA's Mars Global Surveyor spacecraft, which seemed to suggest that the lander had touched down in a crater near the Asidius Planeta landing site. It was claimed that these blurry images were showing a primary impact site as a dark patch, and a short distance away, Beagle 2, surrounded by deflated airbags with its solar panels extended. However, all that was put to one side when, in January 2015, NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft spotted Beagle 2 intact and safely on the surface, but with two of the lander's four solar panels failing to deploy and blocking the spacecraft's communications antenna. Finally, the mystery had been solved. That's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, and from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com. The show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. This is Space Time with Stuart Gary. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr. Just search for Space Time with Stuart Gary. Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. This month, looking at whether the next generation of supercomputers will be able to handle the mega streams of data expected from the next generation of giant telescopes like the Square Kilometre Array. (laughs) 